Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Welcome, everybody. Thank you to everyone who came out to join us for the lecture tonight. We're really excited to have you all. Um, let me go ahead and introduce our speaker, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Joe McInerney is the Director of Leadership and Ethics Education for the Knights of Columbus, a worldwide fraternal association of more than 2 million members with headquarters in New Haven, Connecticut. Prior to retiring as a captain from the United States Navy, he stood as the chairman of the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law, and as permanent military professor of applied ethics and leadership at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. After working in a variety of leadership positions in the Navy, Captain McInerney was selected for the Navy's Permanent Military Professor Program. As a member of that program, he graduated from the Catholic University of America with a doctorate in systematic theology. Captain McInerney also holds a bachelor's degree in history from the United States Naval Academy and a master's of theological studies from the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. A writer of both academic and popular essays, Captain McInerney is also author of The Greatness of Humility, St. Augustine on Moral Excellence, and Passion and Paradox, The Leadership Genius of Jesus Christ. His most recent book, From Achilles to Superman, A Leader's Guide to the History of Ethics, is under review for publication with the Catholic University of America Press. Please join me in welcoming Captain McInerney. McInerney. So, um, so good evening, everybody. Um, it's so good to be here. I, I need to thank Katie in particular for all the help that you've, you've offered to get me here. And, uh, and NC State has been very gracious in its welcome. Andy also for helping show me around the campus this afternoon. So, um, uh, and also I have to thank the Thomistic Institute for giving me the opportunity to come down here and speak. They fund all this. They fund my travel. And so, so I feel I feel honored that that they think I actually have something worth saying to other people. So uh, hopefully hopefully all of you think that too. But um, just uh, you know, it's interesting. So I got this I got this PhD. People say uh, PhD sa uh, stands for pile higher and deeper. So uh, hopefully we won't do too much of that tonight. But uh, it's in systematic theology, which is interesting. Like if you if you ask academic systematic theologians what is systematic theology. They really struggle to tell you what it actually is. What's the discipline? And so, um, so I'm going to probably do that too. But I, I'm going to define it. But I also think that 
I realized after putting this, and I was telling Katie, I kind of spliced a couple of talks together here. This is actually a presentation of systematic theology. So what systematic theology does is it looks at, at divine revelation, scripture, the Bible, and, and you know, organizes it into themes. It tries, tries to draw, draw points out of, out, of, out of the text, so to speak, but it's also in dialogue with other, other disciplines. And so, in, you know, talking in, term, you know, in philosophical terms or maybe psychological terms, even, even some systematic theologians are really engaging with science and contemporary literature. So, so this is going to be some of that. It's going to be a little, little bit of a mix of theology and philosophy. So, um, so I want, so a very good friend of mine is a very, very accomplished public speaker. And he said, you know, the first thing you got to do is you got to relate to your audience. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and do that, but I'm realizing that the things that I'm going to do are probably going to alienate me. Uh, from you, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do it anyway. So the first thing I, I want to do is my mission in life often is to try and embarrass my family as much as possible. So this is my niece Priya, who's in the second row, right? So she came and joined here, and this is the alienation part. She's a grad student at Chapel Hill, so we're, she's going to be you know a member of the Wolf Pack tonight with with me. And she she hangs around with very disreputable people. That's my son Patrick there. So. You know, so you might want to keep your distance a little bit. But uh, so, I, so I was trying to think of NC State. I haven't. I've been here once before, but I was trying trying to think of, um, you know, how I've connected with NC, NC State before. So um, in, in the previous slide, actually, also I, I do have to point out. Oh, going the wrong way. Uh, I am retired. So that that's a nice way of saying I'm old, right? You know, a lot of people they say I look young. Um, but that's just because they want things from me. Um, but uh, so, so, so I'm going to prove that I am old with the, with this aspect of it. So I have actually very strong negative emotional ties to NC State. So I just, just gonna throw it out. There. I, I do because uh, I'm going to date myself. So does anybody know in this room know that NC State won the national basketball title in 1983? Are you familiar with that? You got is that is that something? I mean, the institution knows that, right? Like everybody knows that, right? Right. So, how many people were alive in 1983 to watch NC State win that in, the, in this room? Anybody? <laughs> I am really, I'm by definition really old. So I was old. I was I was 13 at the time. So I I um I was a, uh I was a Saint. I grew up in New York. And I was a Saint John's fan, and uh, Saint John's. Did what they normally do that year when they get to the tournament. They lost almost immediately. So then I was looking around for other teams, and the team I landed on was uh, the University of Houston because they were amazing. They were unbelievable. I mean, and so it was like St. John's. They they always found a way to lose. And so this was Houston. They were they were they like half their team went to the NBA, literally, actually. Um, so I was like, I can't lose with this. So I'm definitely just riding the bandwagon. And they and they went all the way through the playoffs or through the NCAA tournament until they met NC State. And NC State beats them uh, in the most exciting game. I, Forty years later, I can say it was a great game or whatever. And one of the most exciting games I've ever seen. And I was absolutely crushed, even though I couldn't even spell Houston. Never been to Texas or anything like that. But I had attached myself emotionally to being a winner. And I wasn't. It was so I just want to let you know. Just you know, I've been, been working with my therapist about this, so everything's good. We're, we're going to do fun. So anyway, so that's my, my connection with NC State. I actually, it, it is really interesting how you, you get attached to this. Those, those are very, very clear memories for me. Not that you really care. But anyway, so, so that's, that's my attempt to, to relate to my audience. So that's my niece Priya. She's much more interesting than me, so hopefully you get to talk to her at the end of the, at the, end of the day. So we're going to talk about 
the glory of leadership. And just to start out, um, so this is one of my best, so I told you we're going to do theology and philosophy. One of the best philosophers I know, Michael Scott, I don't know if all of you are familiar with him, but uh, uh, you know, so why talk about glory and leadership? Because leaders that are focused on glory, they end up like him, right? You know, and so, um, so it seems like you know, we, especially in the Christian tradition, we like to talk about servant leadership and, and humble leaders and things like that. So it seems like glory might be, be you know, to talk about that or focus on that might be, you know, contrary to those, to those trends. Um, and so it's interesting to answer the question brief, briefly is, is that, well, leaders end up getting glorified a lot of times. Like, you know, it's interesting, like if you look at, uh, if you look at, you know, famous people in history many, many, many times, you know, they're, they're, they might be, you know, famous people in history might have some kind of genius, but a lot of times they're leaders, whether they're political leaders, military leaders, religious leaders, but, they, but leadership draws attention and it draws, it can draw glory <laughs> for good or for bad. Um, and so it's an interest, it's an interesting phenomenon. And so I want to, I want to take a look at it. And, and it's, it's an idea that's actually quite biblical and quite scriptural too. So, um, so I want to, I kind of want to delve into that in, in, in this talk. Um, so how will I do that? So, uh, so just a, a quick path here. What I want to do is, is talk about, um, the, you know, leading with the mind of Christ, so to speak. And so, you know, that, that, and, and in doing that, put that in the context of virtue. So I, my background, I do a lot of work with uh, a classical approach to, to ethics, a classical approach to moral theology, which is also, also a, a, a deep part of the Christian tradition too. And so that's a virtue-based approach. So, so prudence, um, is, is the key moral virtue. It's actually another way to translate uh, prudence from the Greek is, is practical wisdom, and that's prudence has a, has a little bit of a negative connotation in English. So in English, so I like to do uh, practical wisdom. But take a look at that and how the practical wisdom of Jesus leads him to to look at his mission. Then we want to take a look at these two other virtues: magnanimity and humility. Um, and we'll, we'll go into that for a little while, and then bring that back, you know, to to look at the. Uh, Look at the glory of God's leadership, glory, glory of Christ's leadership in that context. So, hopefully, that makes sense. Um, so, uh, it's, what's interesting about leadership is kind of complicated, and uh, and that's why you know if you go if you go into contemporary leadership um, uh, literature, there's like more than forty um, systematic theories of leadership. There's over a thousand definitions of leadership, right? And it's, um, and so there's, it seems like there's a lot of confusion about leadership and it is interesting because it is a, it, it, there's, there can be a science to it, but it's also an art form. Um, and so, uh, and a lot of times people think they're doing it right, but maybe they're not doing it that well. And I think, you know, talking about the virtues is a helpful way to, to get leadership right. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the virtues tonight. Um, so, uh, so if you want to hear about that, you just have to invite me back. But, um, but so that's kind of the background. But just to, to divide, to find virtue. And one, one last thing, one last comment, administrative comment. If anybody has a question or wants wants to make a comment, I'm very happy to. That, that's kind of what I was used to teaching in the Navy. So please feel free to stop me if I'm saying something crazy or if there's something that, that you'd like to, to comment on. Um, so, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on virtue, but just to define it very briefly, virtue simply is uh, an excellent habit, uh, an excellent moral habit, typically. Um, a vice is the opposite, and that's a bad habit. Okay? So we're going to take a look at, at Jesus' leadership in the context of, um, of virtue. So, uh, so leading with the mind of Christ. And again, so, so in a virtue-based approach, we have this, this idea of prudence, 
Prudence is the key moral virtue. According to Aristotle, prudence is actually, is actually an intellectual virtue, um, but it, it guides the moral life. Every virtue, so these are the four cardinal virtues that, you know, this is a strong consensus coming down from antiquity, both in philosophical and theological contexts, say, hey, these are the four cardinal virtues. Practical wisdom or prudence, justice. The prudence is the ability to figure out what you need to do and how to do it. Uh, justice is the ability to give what's due to another person. Temperance is your ability to control your desire for, for pleasure. And then courage is your ability to face danger or fear in the right way. Okay? So practical wisdom is the key virtue because you can't do any of these other three. And, and these are called cardinal virtues. Um, in the background of cardinus, in the Latin, is, the word is hinge. And so, so all the other virtues can kind of line up underneath these virtues. And we'll see an example of that later on. So, but, but, so it's not to say that these are the only, only four virtues. And we also, in the Christian tradition, we have theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Um, but the cardinal virtues, none of them can operate without practical wisdom. So to be, to be courageous, to do the brave thing in a specific situation and not be cowardly on one side or not be, um, not be reckless on the other, you need practical wisdom. You need to figure out what's the right path to do the courageous things. things. So prudence is, is this ability to not only know what's right, so that's part of it, it's kind of a two, two-fold approach, it's the ability to figure out how to do what's right also. Okay? Um, so for Aristotle, he described prudence as, uh, you know, the mark of virtue is um, the ability to do the right thing at the right time in the right way to the right person, so to speak. And so prudence is crucial to be able to do all those things. To be able to do all those things is really, is really difficult. Um, it's kind of like hitting the bullseye, so to speak. So, so you can't hit the bullseye without practical wisdom uh, or the habit of practical wisdom. And, and just one last thing from the last slide, sorry. Um, so practical wisdom enables us to figure out what things should be accomplished and the way to make those things happen, right? And so, so when we take a look at, um, at you know, the person of Jesus in the Gospels, you know, so what's his, his mission? His mission is to reconcile the world to the Father. So it's kind of a big mission, right? Um, so it's salvation of all humanity. So what's interesting is, is that it's a big job. Uh, so he's take, kind of taking it on. We're going to talk about that in the context of his magnanimity. Um, but in the context of prudence, and if you look at the, at, at, the, um, at the gospel narratives, he doesn't seem very prudent. He seems uh, kind of reckless, actually. So um, he chooses his friends poorly, at least from the world's perspective. You know, he doesn't choose powerful people. He doesn't choose educated people. He doesn't choose rich people. Got a bunch of fishermen and a bunch of other ragtag people following him along. And then... He constantly goads the authorities of his time. He's constantly challenging them all the time. He's saying, you know, he's, he says, he tells them he can forgive sins. He, can, he tells them he's Lord of the Sabbath. Um, he's, uh, he's, he actually, in all four Gospels, you see him cleansing the temple, which is, you know, really going to the heart of the religious authority of that community and saying, oh, you guys got it all wrong. Um, and so he's constantly pushing the authorities, um, and, uh, and he's got no backup. It's not like the apostles or the disciples are a bunch of fighters. They're not. And, uh, and so, but he's, he's pushing against authorities that, that literally do have physical force in the Romans, but also the, the, the religious authorities can get the Romans to do what they want, which we see in the, the climax of the Gospels, right? So what's he doing? Why is he doing this? And it, it's interesting. So I think it, it, it makes sense in the context of his mission. So this is 
Um, and, and just a, one other caveat. Everything I say in here, none of it's original. So this analysis that, that I'm going to tell you right now, I think it's brilliant. And I can say that because it's not mine. <laughs> so, uh, so it's coming from a guy named Raymond Schwager. Uh, uh, Father Schwager is a Jesuit priest in Austria. He just passed away a few years ago. But, um, but it, he has an analysis on, uh, on he, he asks the question, why doesn't Jesus come down from the cross? You know, he's got, he's got all these people taunting him and telling him to come down from the cross. And, and if you're a Christian, you believe that he's the second person of the Holy Trinity, he's God incarnate, he's got the power to come down from the cross. So why doesn't he It's an interesting question. His analysis on, his answer to that, I found really compelling, which I'll go through in a second. So, but when he, he starts from this, this uh, passage from the Gospel, which is you know, very familiar to us. If you ever watch, you know, if you ever watch, you see uh, John 3.16 behind the field goal of football games, you know, it might even happen in NC State Stadium. They hold this, this, that sign up, and this is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him, might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So what's interesting here is, is that, is that and, and what Father Schwager points out is, is that he, he interprets the mission of Christ is to overcome, to overcome and overturn an interpretation of the Torah, the law at the time. Is that what, what the religious authorities did is they were very scrupulous readers of the law, and they expected everybody to, to not only obey the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law. And if people didn't obey the letter of the law, well, they would condemn those people. And they would even uh, unleash violence on those people. And you see this in, in John chapter 8, you have the scene of the woman caught in adultery. And so this is a typical example of what's, what, what do you do with the woman caught in adultery? Well, you stone her, right? Um, and so it's interesting in that example, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating because Jesus says, okay, you know, the famous line, uh, who among you is, is without sin, that person can cast the first stone. And so they all just, just kind of walk away. But what Father Schwanger says is, um, is that, and he, he introduces his analysis by saying, you know, Christ, according to scripture, is, has come to judge the world. And it's in part of his initial, his initial uh, proclamation of the gospel is repent. So it's, it, judgment is embedded in, in, in his message. And then scripture says all judgment has been handed over to the Son by the Father. So you have the just judge of the world comes, and instead of judging, he gets judged, and he gets condemned. But the reality is, is that it's his own fault. He's the one that provoked the judgment, um, which is kind of interesting. So he's constantly challenging the religious authorities in ways that they were going to find very upsetting, um, because he knew they would do what they do. They judge and they condemn. And they judge and they condemn, and he knew they would do that to him, and they would condemn him to violence and even death. And so what's really interesting is that you see this being brought out in the narrative constantly. And then at the climax of the, of the gospel narratives and the passion narratives that we're all so familiar with, when Jesus is, is you know, in, in the, the seat being judged, and they can't get the testimony of all the witnesses to line up, they, then, then the high priest says, well, are you the Messiah? And he says, yes, I am. So here's the guy that, that's always running circles around his, his interlocutors and his adversaries. When it counts most, he gives them the evidence that they want to condemn it. And so what's really interesting is, is that the reason he's doing this, according to Father Schwager, and I think it's, it's really interesting, is, is that 
he's living out what he taught in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount, we, uh, if people remember, it's, it's, he says crazy stuff there that people would say, well, you're not going to do that. If you do, if you do what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're just going to get run over by this world. He says things like, you know, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. You know, if they take your coat, give you, give them your other coat. And you know, if they want you to walk a mile, walk two miles, turn the other sheep. He says all that stuff, but who's going to listen to him if he doesn't live it out, right? And so he provokes a confrontation where he knows he's going to be judged. And then the question comes, what does God do in the face of his enemies? What does he do when people hate him and attack him? And uh, he does exactly what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes on the cross and he prays for the people that are, that are, uh, that are persecuting and are putting him to death. So it's really interesting is that in Father Schwager says, Hey, he's not only, not only does he preach a high standard of morality, his behavior actually eclipses that standard in, in what he does. And, and St. Paul in the letter of the Romans has this nice comment about the uniqueness of the sacrifice of the cross. And St. Paul says, you know, some, um, some people will be willing to die sometimes. Some very brave people are willing to die for, for, for people that they love. Um, but what's unique about Christ's sacrifice is that he died for people that he loved, he died for people that were indifferent to him, and he died for people that actually hated him also, the very people that were putting him on that cross. And so, so this, is, this is a very unique thing that Father Schwager says, but this is the logical conclusion of Jesus' teaching, that the only way for him to get it across, not only to his adversaries, who, to be frank, are probably not going to listen, but most importantly to his followers, is that this is the life I'm calling you to. I don't know why they would follow. It doesn't seem all that attractive. But it does, it does end in glory, uh, in the resurrection. But he had to live it out, so to speak. And so, and so the gospel narratives, in part, are, are demonstrating that conflict. He creates the conflict and so he can live, live out that reality to accomplish that mission, right? So, um, so, so he, he, uh, it doesn't seem prudent in the typical sense, but when it comes to um, get knowing what he has to do and figuring out how to do it. That's his practical wisdom at work. He's doing he's doing things. He's he's you know in conflict with the religious authorities, but he knows that that's a conflict that that's the only way he can accomplish his mission. Um, so within within that mission and within all that back and forth, I think we can say see two virtues at work. This virtue of magnanimity. Which is a hard word because it's hard to say. I've been saying a lot, so I, pr- I get a lot of practice. You, does anybody know? So the opposite of magnanimity is not humility, actually. So the opposite of magnanimity is a word I can't, still can't say because I don't say it enough. It's, does anybody know what it is? Can you still say magnanimity? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you say it? Pusillanimity. Right. So that's that's magnanimity philosophically, and it's. You know, so I'm, I'm using a philosophical definition of the term, which is a little different than, than uh, the, just the plain use of the word magnanimous. But the philosophically mag, magnanimity, well, we'll see what it is in a minute. We'll see how Aristotle describes it. But pusillanimity, close enough, is, uh, is thinking too lowly, small, you know, thinking of yourself less than it's appropriate or less than it's accurate, which is different than humility. Hopefully that will come out so, so it, what's interesting, so I did my, uh, as uh, Katie wrote, read that kind biography of me. By the way, that biography makes me sound really good. If you ever need 
um, to, to find out what the real Joe is like, you just I'll just give you my wife's number and she can tell you <laughs> all the issues. And Priya can Priya actually have family here, so you can you can attest to uh, to everything. So, but maybe we would just have to whisk you out of the room later. So, um, so uh, I got to the Naval Academy after studying at Catholic University, and my dissertation was on on the virtue of humility in Saint Augustine's thought. And so, as soon as I got there, I, I was uh, one of my future colleagues. Who I just met him. Um, very, very bright guy and very um, gregarious guy. Sits down, he's like, "Oh, you're, you're the humility dude." It's kind of hard to brag about your, you know, humility, right? So I was like, "Yeah, I guess you can put it that way." He's like, "Well, well, do good leaders do they need to be proud or humble?" And I was like, "I don't know. <laughs> I never, I never asked that question before." Um, so, and it was interesting. We were teaching this ethics course, and we had we had readings from primary sources, one of which was Aristotle. And so the Aristotle reading was was an excerpt from his ethics, and the title of it was Pride, the Greatest Virtue. Okay? And so that's obviously a little, little different than, than the Christian tradition. Um, and so, so I had to think about that, that a bit, and so, so I had to, had to figure this out. So I've been thinking about it. Um, and it's interesting. So, you have, so here are two, two historical leaders that, um, that seem to, to personify the question. So Alexander the Great... Um, he named, I think, 70 cities after himself, right? So, uh, but he did name one after his horse. So he's not totally, his horse's name is Bucephalus. So some useless information. But, uh, but after I heard that stat, I had to find out the guy, the horse's name. So 70 <laughs> cities after yourself. He's, he's pretty, uh, pretty um, thinks kind of highly of himself. Actually, so it's interesting. So uh, there's a... Uh, a Scottish historian who described Alexander's mindset. And he said, you know, Alexander strode about the world and wherever he went, wherever he found humans, he felt he found subjects. Everybody was, was below him, so to speak, right? So this is very different from a guy like Gandhi. Um, and uh, he, Gandhi, you know, he would, he would do, uh, do nonviolent protests, end up in jail a lot. He lived in a hut. He made his own clothes. He was not, you know, he's not a figure of grandeur, so to speak. So, but these are obviously two very influential leaders in history, two very different approaches to things. So it kind of, it kind of, you know, brought the question back to me, are great leaders proud or humble, right? Um, and so these, these two represent two intellectual traditions, actually, too. So, um, so Aristotle was uh, Alexander's tutor, actually, for two years. So, uh, and uh, Aristotle taught on, on this idea of magnanimity, which is, a, which is an English translation, and all the translation stuff kind of confuses the question. And then we have a, a person like C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis is, uh, most people are familiar with him, he's the, the, the Narnia movies, and he was a, a professor at Oxford and Cambridge, an English professor, but did write a lot of um, Christian works. Started out as an atheist, and, uh, and mere Christianity, and people might be familiar with, you know, documents his, you know, he kind of, does his spiritual biography of how he, how he converts. So he talks about, um, so in our readings in that course, we had Aristotle on pride is the greatest virtue, and C.S. Lewis literally in an article, pride is the greatest sin. So it's like, okay, what's up with that? We got these two really smart people saying literally the exact opposite. So, so let's take a look at what, what Aristotle had to say, and, uh, and then we'll take a look at what Lewis had to say. So, so Aristotle on the prank. Basically, they are good and they know it, literally. Is that, that was his, his formulation. So, so, so the Greek term is megalopsychos, 
Greatness and great mega love, great, and then psychos is soul. So great soul, you could say, is the little literal um, translation. And so um, that person, the great soul person, is somebody who who is truly has the virtues, and they they understand that they truly have the virtues, and because of that, um, they they think they deserve great honors because they're truly wonderful, right? So um, so it's just an accurate uh, statement of of who they are. So this is, so, you know, it's really interesting. Um, so St. Thomas Aquinas is a great Christian thinker who spends a lot of time with Aristotle and kind of, you know, cleans up some of the rough, rough edges. Um, but, but what St. Thomas says is that, you know, there's a real insight here, is, is, that, is that to be a good person is you, uh, you have to recognize, you know, the, the talents that you have, so to speak. Um, and then on the basis of, of that recognition, you then do great tasks that will further refine the talents that you have. So for Aristotle, the magnanimous person is able to, they recognize their strengths and then they take on great tasks and in doing so, they become better because they take on these great challenges, so to speak. Um, so they're concerned with honor. So honor is the greatest external good for Aristotle because you give honor to the gods. So, so the magnanimous person, they're trying to be godlike. Kind of. And so, so they're focused on honor um, so he says, pride makes the other virtues greater. So they only do, they don't do a lot. They only do great deeds. And it's interesting. So, you know, according to St. Thomas, he's got a good initial insight, and then he gets into some, some less good observations. So he says they're dignified and unassuming. Um, he says the magnanimous person gives but doesn't receive, which that sounds pretty nice, right? It sounds almost generous. But he goes into much greater detail and says it's not generosity. The thing about the magnanimous person is if they get a gift from somebody, that means that kind of implies that that other person is better than the magnanimous person. So what they do is they turn around and they give them a bigger gift to make sure that they know that they're not as good as the magnanimous person. That's that's the point that they're... That they're so like Elvis? <laughs> How so, Will? Did Elvis do that? Uh, some lady baked him a cake once as a gift, and the next day he gave her his car. <laughs> I knew Elvis was an Aristotelian. <laughs> so, is, that true? Is, that true? is that in the movie? I don't know, but he gave her his Cadillac. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of generous. That might be, I don't know. So, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to a colleague, work colleague, and he was saying that that Elvis was like he got into some new age stuff at the end of his life, but he but that he he did have a, a strong Christian faith in some ways too. And that apparently it, there was a scene in one of his concerts where some you know it was like some you know crazy groupie was saying, "Oh, you're the king," and he stopped the concert and said, "I'm not the king." You know, Jesus is so it's, so it's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if that's true, but uh, it sounds like a good story. But uh, it's interesting. So yeah, so if Elvis, so that's the thing. Is Elvis being generous there, or is he being, uh, uh, or is he being, being magnanimous? I think that's that's such a crazy ch- exchange. It probably is being generous. And it, this is this is the interesting thing about ethics is, is that it's really kind of complicated because if he's being generous, it's an awesome thing to do, and if he's trying to put her in her place, it's a horrible thing to do. You know, it's it's really small small distinctions that, that, that make the meaning in a, in a gesture. So the magnanimous person also wishes to be superior, and they look down on others, and they're open in hate and love. So like, so if you meet a magnanimous person, according to Aristotle, they, they think they're better than you, they want to be better than you, and they'll tell you that they're better than you, right? It's not the most attractive um, uh, uh, way to go about in life. And, then, and this is really interesting, so self-sufficient. Um, so that's what the, the magnanimous person, according to Aristotle, wants to be self-sufficient. And so there's, there's a contemporary philosopher uh, named Ar- uh, Alistair McIntyre, who's 
uh, very elderly now, but he's, he's taught at Notre Dame and a bunch of other places. And he's very much a follower of Aristotle, but he criticizes Aristotle for this. He says, you know, philosophers are really bad on this because the reality is there's no such thing as a self-sufficient person. So McIntyre wants to make this argument, but he's, uh, and he's much smarter than I am, but he does it like a typical philosopher way, in a way that nobody can understand. So he, he, he wrote a book called Dependent Rational Animals. Does anybody know what a dependent rational animal is? It's us. What? It's us. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a human being. So he might, you know, so he's trying to make it as complicated as possible. But he's got a great point, is that the reality is, and this is something that philosophy has missed. In the, I mean, Aristotle is this polymath, he's a genius, and he is a genius that's influenced the entire tradition. But the problem is, is that we are always dependent. There has never been a human that has been self-sufficient, ever. It's never existed. And most humans are radically dependent at birth, and radically dependent in the, in, when they're elderly. And in the middle, when we're at the height of our strength right now, we're still very dependent on one another. So this is kind of, it's, it's, it's a fiction, actually. And, uh, and it's a problematic fiction because it, it actually obscures a lot of virtues that, that we should be pursuing, like virtues of generosity, virtues of gratefulness and thankfulness and things along those lines. The virtues that help us, you know, as individuals form good relationships and form communities, so to speak. So, um, so, so this is, this is the magnanimous person. A lot of philosophers have read this description and said, you know, one, they say, he's joking, right? I mean, who would want to be like that? That's the height of virtue? You know, some, some kind of, you know, uh, very arrogant person, it sounds like, Aristotle's painting this picture. Um, in Aristotle's defense, I think what you, what you have is, and this is, this is a challenge for all philosophers and ethicists, is that you have some transcendent principles embedded in here, like uh, you know, rec- being able to recognize your talents. That's something that's important to all of us um, with culturally bound. So what you see is you know, all this other stuff. Like he even goes to, he even talks about how you have, to, you have to be tall to be magnanimous, you have to have a low voice, and you have to walk slowly, apparently, too. So this is all, I mean, gets really into it. And uh, so, but it's all, it's all stuff that a Greek aristocrat from 2,500 years ago, that would look like. And uh, so, so, um, so it's not very attractive. Some people think it's joking, a lot of people think it's just horrible. Or whatever. So, so this other guy that I mentioned, David Hume, he's uh, he's an 18th century historian and philosopher, and so he's um, a very influential guy actually. And but he recognized he's he's with Aristotle. He says that the great people in history they stride across the pages of history because they think they're awesome. They have this pride and self esteem that is just dominant in their personality. But he recognized the problem is, is that. People don't like that. It's the only thing an arrogant pe- person doesn't like in another person is arrogance. It's just very unattractive. So, so Hume's solu- solution to this is um, arrogance is obnoxious. So be proud on the inside, but just don't let anybody know. All right. So be 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 mod- and It's interesting. He he chooses his words carefully. He says, "Be modest on the outside, um, but don't be humble. Humble is a vice for you because his his criteria for virtues and vices are anything that's useful and makes you happy, so to speak, would be a virtue. Humility does not make you happy. And authentic humility is bad for, for you. So this is a question that I asked that I used to ask my classes, and I'll ask you too. That's all right. So does that work? Does Hume's solution work? Aristotle plus Hume equals leadership? Any reactions to that? Yeah. Uh, my first hypothesis is that um, what the bowels use is what comes out from the heart. Right. And so right, right. Uh, if you're 
typo on the inside, your actions are still going to reflect that. Okay. So that doesn't have the right intent. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so, so, so if you're if you're proud on the inside, it's going to come out. Is that is that kind yeah. of what you're saying? Okay. Any other uh, any other reactions? I think that, I think that's a great way to put it, and you know, to be honest, this is why in the end I like theology better than philosophy because it's much more, it's much less cumbersome. You can really get directly to the point. But uh, and and so like so where I was teaching, I was at the Naval Academy, and so I was teaching sophomores, and the sophomores have to do what the upper class like the upper class is kind of like a military culture and organization in the dorms, and so they have to do what the upper class tell them to do, like the seniors are in charge and stuff like that. And I was like, so yeah, they, the seniors call firsties, and so I asked them. Have you ever met a firstie that uh, pretends that they care about you, but um, all they all they really care about is, is themselves? And you know, half the people are like, uh, no, and other people are like, you know, they have to be like, yeah. So, and the reality is that if they hadn't met them at that point, they will. You know, you'll see a lot of people um, with huge description of le- of leadership. But I think your point is is absolutely is absolutely well taken is that in, in your what's in your heart eventually will come out and what's really interesting is that leader follower relationships often are you know quite intimate you know quite you know they're close proximity a lot of times and so so you can you can hide a lot of stuff but not you know if over time that kind of thing will typically come out um, but yeah yeah you wanna... uh, just kind of like building off of the Alexander the Great kind of example yeah uh, as soon as he deceased, all of his closest members went into wars with each other. Right. But <laughs> they're all fragmented. Christ and the disciples did the opposite. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great point. It's interesting because when you talk about Christian leadership, a lot of times people say, "Well, that's an ideal that nobody's going to live. It's impossible to live out." Um, but this really interesting quote, it's attributed to of all people Napoleon, um, and it was supposedly. You know, the, so historians say, well, maybe he said it, maybe he did it, because he's supposedly he said it uh, in his second exile. I forget which which island he was exiled to. He said it to his general or whatever. But he said it, you know, <laughs> he he sounded pretty magnanimous <laughs> in Aristotle's sense, because uh, he was like, you know, he's comparing himself to I don't know Charlemagne and uh, Caesar and him. You know, what did our you know what what were our you know, how were our empires built? They were built on power and violence. Um, but Christ, what was his empire built on? It was built on love. And he said, to this day, millions will die for Christ. He's like, ah, you know, for me, Caesar, don't care too much. So I think there's 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 a real leadership insight into that, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, the, that at best, at best with Hume, you know, you have an inauthentic relationship. But over time, it, it won't last. Basically. So, um, so it's kind of so it's, it doesn't seem like it's a great a great answer. So let's let's turn to Lewis. So Lewis, um, so in his article, this comes from Mere Christianity. He's talking about pride, and he's he's making some distinctions about humility. Uh, he's saying the humble person isn't necessarily lowly, but is self forgetful. Um, pleasure in being praised isn't pride. So he, he's saying you know you can have pride in your school. Pride, be proud of your son or daughter or something along those lines. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Pride in your school is fine until you start saying, well, I'm better than other people because I went to NC State or something like that, right? So that's where it can take it. And it's a subtle term, but it, but it can take that term, right? So, and pleasure, even pleasure in being praised is pride. So it's okay to be proud of something. 
But he says, pride is the worst fault, and don't let it crowd out other faults. It leads to every other vice. So this is this really strong assertion. It's competitive. It's a pleasure in being above others. So there's a little overlap with, uh, with Aristotle on magnanimity. It leads to en- en- enmity, and the proud cannot know God. Um, and so, uh, so he's really down on pride. Um, and Aristotle seems to be really up on pride. So can we reconcile the two perspectives? <laughs> no. <laughs> Making edits. <laughs> What's that? Making edits. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's interesting because I, I think um, I don't, I don't want to. I think there's there is a tension there. There's obviously, and there's they're saying different things. But um, what's interesting is is that I don't want to reduce that either. They definitely think differently, but they're not as opposed as one as one might think um, because of language. Actually, so um, so he was talking about the so, so this is the Latin, right? So um, you know, just to go to magnanimitas first. So that's a direct translation of the Greek megalopsychos I mentioned earlier. So magnus, great, anima is spirit, right? So great spirit. Um, so uh, superbia. Any idea what that is? What's that? Superiority. Well, kind of. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be honest, I think there's a root to that, but that's the Latin term for pride. Right? So there's two different there's two different Latin words that we're talking about. So what's interesting is is that pride. And the problem with pride in English is it's it, one. It's got it's got baggage. It's got historical baggage from the Christian tradition that says all the stuff that C.S. Lewis just said. Um, but it's ambiguous also. Um, and so so superbia has a very specific definition, and it is the sin of pride. And so superbia or pride as a sin is self love, self love, disordered self love. And so, so it's not it's not that you can't love yourself, but it's disordered self love that puts the love of self above all other loves, up to and including love for God. That's superb. That's the sin of pride. And so, so there's a, you know it's interesting. So we're using a text at the Naval Academy, which is supposed to be a great institution of higher learning, and we had a really bad translation actually. Um, so it's kind of interesting, and, it, and so it kind of confuses confuses the term. So um so so in the Catholic tradition, we have another resolution between. Uh, between uh, magnanimity and humility, and St. Thomas uh, uh, does a really good job with it, and I think it's much better than Hume's interpretation. Hume basically says, you know, be inauthentic and and really be full of yourself. It's okay, don't worry about it. And you'll stride across the pages of history. Uh, I don't think that's, you know, and to be honest, so this is the problem with uh, with ethics, is that, is that sometimes that can be true, but not, not most of the time. You know, it's not generally true. There are exceptions. So, um, so St. Thomas, uh, puts in the context of those four cardinal virtues that I talked about at the, um, at the beginning of the lecture. Magnanimity is a function of courage. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It's the ability to act on your talent in the basis of, you know, you do great things that you might be scared to do. Humility is a part of self-control or temperance, which holds you back from things you ought not to be doing because you don't have the ability to do it. Um, and so humility is really, is really a rich... Um, it's really a rich virtue, actually, and I don't want to. Not that I disagree with St. Thomas there, um, but uh, I think you know at the heart of humility is I, I like Lewis's word of self-forgetful. Is that you know so uh, so St. Augustine was a church father, a doctor of the church, uh, lived three fifty to four thirty. So um, 
and so I spent a lot of time studying him. And so he he uh, he's really interesting. So so uh, Father Schwager says Christ came to overturn this bad interpretation, this condemnatory interpretation of the law. Um, Saint Augustine said Christ came to Earth to teach humility. Very, he's very extreme on the mission. It's this, because our problem is pride. Our problem is self-love. This is the problem of the garden. This is the problem of the devil. This is the problem that, that, that leads to all the other problems from St. Augustine. So Saint, C.S. Lewis is really channeling St. Augustine. And so, so humility in this context is, is actually akin to, to, it's kind of like a form of love, that the humble person is oriented towards love of other things, love of God, love of along those lines. And it's, it doesn't necessarily think mean that the humble person thinks poorly of themselves, but as Lewis says, they think less of themselves. They think about themselves less. So and I think and so there's that's I think that's at the core of humility. Um, but there are a lot of other aspects of humility that, that we can talk about further. So so going through all that, so is Jesus humble or proud? In the in the night in the good sense, magnanimous, would you say? Both. Both, yeah. See, all right. So uh, you do well in my class because, like, if, if a philosopher or a theologian, if they ever ask you an either-or question, it's always both and, right? So, um, so, and there's a lot. There's a lot of scriptural evidence to say both. Why do you say both? Just because you're trying to be hard on me? No, because just the way you've been describing pride and the way you've been articulating it, yeah, as mag- magnanimity. Um, as like a good thing, right, 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 right. So, in Saint Thomas is calling it a virtue. So let's let's look at what is it? So let's look at the humility of Jesus first. I mean, so there's some scriptural evidence on this stuff. So, uh, so the, the the great hymn from Paul's letter to the Philippians, and I'm actually gonna I'm not gonna dwell on that one because I'm gonna come back to it in a little while. But you know, the humility of Christ is all throughout the New, New Testament. And there's a theologian that says so. What another unique aspect of Christian revelation is the transcendent all-powerful creator of the universe is humble. Um, and, that, and that's revealed not through the Old Testament, but through the New Testament. And so we can see that in the, uh, you know, in the, the manger scene in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Gospel of John talks about it a little differently. The true light, which enlightens everyone, came into the world. He was in the world, but the, and the world came to be through him, but the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. So there's kind of a, a humility and even a humiliation to that. But the humiliation actually gets worse. Um, so it's interesting. So Jesus, Jesus teaches humility. He says, rather, when you are invited, go and take the lowest place so that uh, at the table, so that when the host comes to you, he may see my, he may say, my friend, move up to a higher position. Then you will enjoy the esteem of your companions at, ta- at the table. So um, this is an interesting line to me because it. Uh, it, I haven't, like, I, I can't remember where my wallet or my keys are at, at, on a daily basis. You can attest to that. Ten to one, I forget that that, that my bag is gonna, it's in that corner. But, uh, but I remember this very clearly. It was in 2012. I was doing my dissertation defense. And so the dissertation defense is, you know, you do this, this long paper, and then you present it in front of in front of a bunch of people who are much smarter than you, and you're really scared, and you hope that you don't make a fool of yourself. So as I was driving in, I was listening to the radio. And so this is during the Obama administration, and President Obama was at uh, Baruch Women's College in in Manhattan, giving the the commencement speech. 
And he literally said the opposite. He said, you know, don't sit at the foot of the table. Take your seat, grab the head of the table. So it's really interesting. It's that, you know, I would, I would offer that that's worldly wisdom. Um, and that's very different from gospel wisdom. So I'll just, uh, that's my only, uh, my only political comment on that. But, uh, but it's interesting. It's that so he's teaching humility. He says, unless you become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and to remember, like children at this time, um, in culture, very interesting. They children are valued much more in our culture. Not to say that we're perfect on the way we see children, but we value children much more than the ancient communities. Do. So for him to say this, this is, is very striking. It's like, were you crazy? Like, for, for, in families, you had obligations to your parents. You didn't have obligations to your children um, in a lot of cultures. So that was very striking for him to say. So he said, and then this is the uh, this is you know the classic teaching on leadership. Um, you know, the Gentiles lord it over you, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be slave of all. So, uh, so Jesus' explicit teaching on leadership. He lives it, um, you know, in the, uh, in the, when he, he comes to be baptized. This is really interesting. So this is, uh, again, I'm reading this in, you know, St. Augustine interprets that uh, passage, and he's like, that's because he was teaching humility. You know, that's why, you know, that's why Jesus get baptized. From a theological perspective, he doesn't need to be baptized. You know, he's, you know, baptism forgives people of their original sin, brings them into the church. Well, he doesn't have any sin, and he is the church. So it's not like he really needs to be baptized, right? It doesn't make any sense. But, but St. Augustine says he's teaching people. He, he's coming to the proud to teach them humility. So that's why he's doing that. I would also say that he's, he's leading by example. You know, it's another way to, to think about it. And humility is a big part of that. Um, so uh, this is really interesting. It, it, Jesus' high point, even as triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he's still riding on a donkey. Um, you know, so so even even at his high point in his public ministry, he's, there's still an aspect of humility to it. And then last and lastly, and too long to listen to the slide, the passion narratives and the humiliation of the cross. And it's, it is really interesting. Is, is that it's one thing you know. There's there people know that humility is attractive. We hang around people, people that are really full of themselves. We don't really like hanging around with them. But people who are humble, they're very attractive personalities. So there's, you know, we respond well, I think, generally to, to humility. Humiliation is very different, I think. You know, and, it's, and it's interesting because, you know, I talk a good game on, on humility. I don't know if I'm willing to be humiliated, <laughs> excuse me, as I, as I spit across the room. But, uh, I mean, but that's what Jesus takes on in the cross. All right? it's, it's not just pain and suffering, the humiliation you know, at the hands of the enemy, so to speak. That's what he's willing to do. So he's, he lives humility, so Jesus is humble, uh, but he's, he's magnanimous also, right? So, uh, um, so, you know, just a couple of examples again. Uh, so he's correcting Moses. So that's like, so he thinks he's better than Moses, this guy, right? So that's very controversial, and he obviously has a, has a high view of himself if he's doing that. And then he says stuff like this. Everyone who listens to these words of mine, acts on them, would be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, floods came, winds blew above from the house, but it did not collapse. And it had been set solidly on rock. And everyone who doesn't listen to me is a fool. So, okay, so he's got a pretty, uh, pretty strong view of his, of his wisdom. Um, at the judgment, the queen of the south will rise up and condemn the men of this, this generation. She will condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon. There's something greater here than Solomon. Nineveh 
will rise against this generation condemning because of the preaching of Jonah. They repented. There's something greater here than Jonah. I'm better than Jonah. I'm better than Solomon. Um, but it gets worse. Uh, you know, so this is, uh, he sees himself as the, uh, as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and rolling up the scroll. He handed it back to the attendant and this is in the synagogue, sat down. Everybody's looking at him and he says, today this scripture passage is fulfilled in your ear. Um, and then he says, son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Um, he is the gate. Uh, he's the only person uh, that enables people to come to the Father. Um, so I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me to the Father except through me. From now on, I am telling you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am. So this, these I am, these I am phrases. Does anybody know what he's referencing there? Yeah, yeah. So this is this is you know Yahweh, God Almighty. He's saying he's he's identifying. So I mean, who does this guy think he is? He's he literally thinks he's God. Um, so that's pretty magnanimous in a mystic or sense, right? Um, and uh, and it's interesting because that drives his actions. Both aspects, the humility and and the magnanimity, drive his actions. So okay. And I don't know how, how am I doing on time. Good. Good. Okay. All right. I'll try and go through this quick. So, uh, so back to to, to uh, glory. So, I want to I want to take a look at, at glory in the context of, of Jesus's magnanimity and humility. So, I just thought this was funny. I'm not sure if it's really related or not. So, um, but uh, but the thing is, is that you know, self-centered leaders they usually end up being bad ones. So that's how it's related. And this guy's not a good leader, right? Okay. So, but um, but so. So, but we have to. There's a paradox here, and there, there are there are a lot of paradoxes when it comes to, say, the moral vision of the New Testament, and also the, the that vision in regard to leadership. One is like, you know, if you want to be master, you have to be the servant, right? So that's a paradox. The the paradox with glory is is that if you're pursuing your own glorification, um, you're fa- you're going to fail to achieve it. It's the person that doesn't care about glory that's going to that's that has a chance to reap it, so to speak. But let's just talk about glory uh, um, in, in the biblical revelation, just very briefly. So, so it, it's a theme that comes up. You see it in the Old Testament with uh, with Moses. Moses is the friend of God, and he's he's in communication and conversation with God so much so that the glory of the Lord um, radiates from his face. So, so I don't know if people are familiar with this. This um, you know, it's the book of Exodus where. He comes down from the mountain. He's got to wear a veil because he's freaking everybody out because his face is blown, right? So, um, so that's the the glory of the Lord. And it's interesting. It's very similar in the transfiguration. So you have you have this. The glory of the Lord um, is manifest in in light and fear. So the transfiguration. You have Jesus transfigured. Um, and it's really interesting is that you have these in all the Gospels. And then Saint Peter actually in his second letter um, he, he has a reference to the transfiguration also. So but um, but you have you know he's transfigured in light, and the, and the, and the, the apostles are, are you know their, their main reaction is fear. Um, but that's not the only way that that uh, glory is is represented in the gospel. So you have um, got John's gospel two examples of this, where uh, the wedding feast of Cana is, and Jesus turns uh, the water into wine, and um, and so what the gospel says is that this is the first of his signs that ever yields his glory. 
right? And so then, then Jesus cures the blind man, the man born blind, um, and that's done for the, to show the glory of God, the glorification of God. So glory is this manifestation of God's power in the world, and it's also a manifestation of God's power to help humans, to save humans, to, to show his love for humanity. And so, um, so, so that's God's greatest glory, actually, is his ability to save us from ourselves, so to speak. Um, and you see that, again, a little later in John's Gospel. So chapter 12 in John's Gospel is kind of a turning point in the narrative. And actually, so right before the, the grain of wheat line, um, what you see is that the disciples come and say, hey, it's not just the Jews that want to talk to you now. It's the Gentiles. They want to start talking to you. And so Jesus says, in the first 11 chapters, he's talking about, my hour is not coming. You know, like actually, the wedding feast. He says to his mother, "What, what have you to do with me, woman? My hour is not coming." And he says, "It's a common phrase in the first half of the gospel." So this is the turning point. He says, "My hour is come uh, that the Son of Man will be glorified." And literally, so that's verse twenty-three. Um, the hour for the glorification of the Son of Man has arrived. In verse twenty-four, he says, "Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces much fruit." Um, and so, so the glory of the Lord is now presented definitively in the New Testament as the suffering and sacrifice of Christ to save humanity. Um, and so, so between 20, John 24, this is John 32, you have a series of, of uh, dialogue between the, the Son and the Father saying, you know, um, you know and, and Jesus is reflecting upon the path he's about to trod, and he's not all that happy about it. Because it's going to be a path of suffering, and he says, "You know, what am I going to say? You know, you know, uh, relieve me of these duties. This is the whole reason I came." Um, and and the father responds, "You know, uh, you know uh, that you know this is your glory, and uh, you know we are we are glorifying one another in this process." I don't have a good. good it's not a great summary of the, of the of the actual text, but you know, I you know he oh yes, Jesus says, "Father, glorify your name." And, and the Father responds, um, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. And then Jesus says, and this is an interesting, um, it's kind of an interesting leadership image here, is that when he's lifted up, he will draw everyone to himself. And so um, so the glory of, of God to save humanity in the New Testament comes by way of suffering and sacrifice. Um, so this is a quote that, that I, I really... I've found compelling in the past by a theologian, a 20th century theologian, big name, Hans Urs von Balthasar. He's from Switzerland, so I guess they have long names there. But uh, they, um, so he, you know, he, he's a very, he was a very humble priest, and he said, you know, I, I don't want to be, you know, disrespectful trying to get into the, the mindset of, of our Lord, but he said, this is, this is the way he probably saw himself. I am the one through whom the kingdom of God must and will come. And what's really interesting about that is, and that's, it's really scripturally based, which we'll see in a second, but it's also a, a, um, a line that applies to all of Jesus' followers, too. Um, but within that, you have both humility and magnanimity. Um, you know, the humility to go through suffering, death, and humiliation. It can't be done. The glory of God cannot be achieved without the sacrifice of the cross. Um, but then you also have to, the magnanimity to say, I am the Son of God, and I am the one that's going to achieve this mission. And so what I think what's interesting about, 
about getting back to this idea of glory is that if, if a leader is concerned about their self-glorification, you know, it'll slip through their fingers, so to speak. Um, but that's not Christ, what Christ is concerned about. And this is, this is what he's concerned about. This is his mindset, which is given us to us in Luke's gospel. And I think this is the basis for Father Von Balthasar's quote. Um, but he says, I've come to set the earth on fire and how I wish it were already burning. There is a baptism by which I must be baptized and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. And so it's interesting. This is the key to all the reckless stuff he does in the gospel narratives. That's what's behind it. It's really interesting. Um, so, uh, um, but he's not desiring glory. He's desiring mission. Um, that's what matters. And if he, if, he, if he was desiring his own glory, guess what? It's kind of kind of like what Hume was saying. Nobody's going to follow somebody who cares about themselves first and other people second. But people are going to follow someone who's focused on the mission, especially when the mission is helping them, so to speak, right? Um, so a couple less. So this yields, this is the, the, the fundamental paradox of Christ's glory, and we're all familiar with this, with this, with Paul's uh, hymn. Um, but, uh, you know, so I won't read, read the whole thing, but it's, through humility that Christ is exalted. So there's this paradoxical relationship. And I think that's manifested in the leadership of Jesus also that we were talking about. Also, there's a lot, lot to it. Love is central to it also. But uh, humility leads to exaltation, leads to glorification, but only if you're focused on the mission rather than glory itself. So I, I, I was searching the internet to find find a good slide to represent that last point, and I was trying. I was I was like searching for you know being uh, um, not being self interested, and all I came in was all this self help stuff that kept on saying you are wonderful. So I just this was one of the ones. This is not what I was looking for. You are amazing. In case you forget, right? So um, so that's again maybe worldly wisdom, but I found a different one that's that's more to the point. Um, you know, so for the, the point for us, if we want to be leaders, I think, is to follow that pattern. Focus on the mission. That's what matters. Um, and uh, leave your self-interest out of it. And the paradox is, is that uh, you may be glorified. If you do it well, uh, you may be glorified, but that doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it's focusing on the mission. So, so that's my spiel. Um, and so I think it went a little longer than, than I anticipated, but I'm not sure where are we at. Okay, okay. So I am happy to take questions or comments. If you want to tell me how good looking I am, I'm very open to that. If you know, <laughs> if, you know, you know if you want to say how dumb this is, I'm very open to that too. My wife tells me stuff like that all the time. So, uh, but I, I'd love to, to get your questions or comments or, or whatever you want to say. Yeah. I had a question going back toward the beginning. Yeah, sure. Um, you mentioned the time when Jesus, in all four Gospels, drove out, went into the temple and drove out the money changers and the land of animals. Right. And afterwards he used the line, quit making my father's house a marketplace. Right. I'm kind of interested in the translation behind that from whether it was Greek or Latin or whatever. Yeah. Why does it say my father's house? Why does he say our father's house? If he would have done that, you might have gotten more support behind it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I'd have to do the research. I don't, I don't know. It's a really, I, I'm glad that you're making that, that distinction, though, because it's, it's, it's an interesting distinction. Um, because you have, you know, so, so Christ is the eternal Son of the Father, and so obviously he's unique in that regard. But he's also, 
um, you know, creating a family and calling us brothers and sisters, so to speak. Who, who, you know, who is my mother and my brother and my sister are those, those who do the will of, of my father in heaven. So, um, so it's interesting is, is that, you know, and this is just my own speculation, which means it's probably full of baloney. But uh, there's, you know, what's, what's nice about, uh, what's interesting about Christ, the person of Christ and the incarnation is, he's truly human. Right, and so there's a real and and you know in in Christian anthropology, which is you know the Christian understanding of the human person, is based on on Trinitarian theology, um, and that there's there the height of creation, the height of existence, the, the great pinnacle is personal existence, and we see it in the, in the relationships of the of the Holy Trinity, and that's we're created in the image and likeness of that Holy Trinity, and so that's our great dignity. Um, in the Christian context, and so it's interesting is that you know his what, the way he phrases that in Scripture is highly personal. It's that you know it's not just it's not just our Father there; it's it's my Father, and so that that happened in, in particular. I think you're talking about John's Gospel, and in, in John's Gospel, you see Jesus say over and over and over and over again, "This is just this complete." Um, dedication and commitment to the Father. He can, I mean, like a dozen times he says, I've come here not to do my will, but the Father's will. So it's interesting. I wonder if that if that kind of, um, for lack of a better term, emotion and passion is why why it's it's said my rather than our. And I don't know. I don't know if you have it's a great question. I don't know if you have any reactions to that. Oh, yeah, I just okay. wanted to yeah. answer the yeah, question sure. that. Um, I think some of it knowing zero things about the transition yeah. is we become children of God once we're baptized. And before that, we aren't children of God. We're creatures, we're beloved creatures, but we aren't beloved children. It's baptism okay. that would wash us that original sin, gives us the sanctifying grace. And at that point, we become children. And so I don't know if people were like baptizing others with the Trinitarian formula mm-hmm. until after Jesus's like, death and passion and resurrection. And so... Technically, they wouldn't have been children of God yet. Beloved creatures, yes, but because they hadn't been baptized into like the family of God, it wouldn't. It, God wouldn't necessarily be their father. Did you want to say the same? Thing? Okay, all right. Let me. I'll come back to you. But uh, yeah, yeah. What was the comment about this conversation? I think that's fine. I have a separate question. Okay, okay. Yeah, do you, do you want to? Yeah, to rephrase the question. Yeah, sure, sure. I didn't hear it from a theological standpoint. I meant it from if you were yeah. someone who's a public speaker that went up, <laughs> right, right, right. what's the way they're going to get most of the crowd on their side? Is right, it, right. Try and make them angry or try and say, we're all in this together. We were trying yeah. to lead people to think we do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, so, you know, I, what I think is in some ways, it, like he, he was very happy. At times, he, you know, he would say things to obviously draw people in, but he was also very willing to say things in a way that they, that, you know, they probably wouldn't find attractive. Like if you, if you look at, you know, like he promises suffering to everybody, like who wants to suffer? And he's like, you, you know, if you follow me, you, you're, you're going to suffer. And that's, so it's kind of like, it's not really all that attractive. Um, you know, like, uh, let's see, the other, the other thing I instance oh yeah john six with the with the bread of life's discourse at the end of it they're like this is nuts you know and he's like all right you want to leave you know 
this is truth, right? So that's it's kind of interesting. Is that at some points he does kind of draw a line in the sand. I don't know if I'd have to read more of the, the, that that passage to, to know to make a strong stand. That. So um, all right, so you had your hand up. Yeah. So we'll get to you I've been thinking about this this question for a while, but kind of in light of like leadership, how would a, how should a Christian go about? Pursuing opportunities of leadership because we have Pope Benedict in one example where he right. wasn't he didn't want to be elected pope but he yeah. elected but also then Fulton Sheen actively pursuing and putting himself out there right so right yeah. yeah it's it's a great question it's interesting so I I uh, I'll make it personal I can see it in, in two of my sons actually so don't say anything to Patrick and Liam um, but it, it's really interesting is is that so they both one graduated from the Naval Academy one's in the Naval Academy so like. So the Naval Academy, like you have this at, at senior year, you can become you can become what's called stripers, and then it's basically you, yeah, you have to um, just to put it frankly, kiss a lot of rear ends, and you know, and you get the stripes, and you have the rank, and you can boss people around. So it attracts not the nicest people, and uh, um, and so my older son, he was like, I don't want anything to do with that, um, and, and, and in a lot of ways, I didn't blame him. Um, my younger son is interested in doing it, um, and, and I think there's a good reason to be interested in doing it. It's that if you let all the people who are attracted to that kind of stuff end up competing and getting the leadership jobs, guess what? Everybody's miserable. So we, you need good people to, um, to, to pursue those leadership jobs, really. And, 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 but I think that's so much, I mean, it's, it, your two examples are awesome. I mean, Pope Benedict is a really interesting because he never, I mean, and this is, you know, this is from a professor of mine that, that knew him. He was like, he never wanted to be in Rome. He never wanted to be in, you know, in charge of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. But the Pope asked him to do it. So he was like, of course. And then um, and it was just uh, actually um, one of the cardinals just came out that when he, when, when he got elected Pope, he was like almost apparently almost having like a panic attack. And one of the cardinals said, hey, God's calling you. You know, God, God will support you, and, and that, that helped you through. So here's a person that was put into leadership positions that it was not his. It was not his first desire. Where you know, and I'm, I don't know the history about Archbishop Sheen as much, but just just to say to say that he, he's kind of a contrast. And I think that's the interesting thing about the church. And Saint Paul talks about we all have our talents and gifts from God, and so we have to you know really in our prayer life say, you know, what do you want me to do with this stuff? You know, it's interesting for me. I'm like a total introvert. I hate getting up in front of people and talking, but um, whatever. It's what I think God's calling me to do. So here I am. But uh, but so so that's I think is is you know it, it, it differs according to the way the Spirit touches each each person's hearts. But I think it's a great it's a great question. So you had your hand up too. Mm-hmm. So I mean I'm I'm kind of along the same line as him. I'm just thinking of, about like how do you reconcile like this fact that yes we should recognize greatness in ourselves and then like you see a bunch of saints being like i am miserable i am wicked i'm awful and like running away from yeah yeah that's a great question because i you know there are many examples of that um and uh i would say you know the saints are holy because they they one of the reasons they are is because they have such such humility and they have a clear view of their flaws. Um, but hey, have you ever met a, a saintly person that they say they're so horrible but they're better than everybody you know? You know, I think that's 
that's the phenomenon that's going on with the cities. I think, I think, you know, to be honest, and I'll just go out on a limb here, I'm, I'm very much a traditionalist, so it's not like I want to go around criticizing saints. But I think a view of humility that says, I'm horrible, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm worthless, I'm lowly, there's a truth to that, and that that's true in, in our relationship to God. Um, so, like, a, a, there's, a, there's a priest named Father Walter Chiswick. Has anybody ever heard of him? He's a, he's a Jesuit. Um, and he's written two books. He's passed away, like, in 1980. One book was With God in Russia. Um, it's his biography. He basically went to, Ru- went to Poland right before World War II. He wanted to minister to Russia. He was locked out. And then the war started, and he got engulfed. And within a month, they captured him, <laughs> said he was a spy from the Vatican, put him in solitary confinement for five years. Spent 15 years in Siberia, so interesting guy. But he's he's very simple with humility. He's like, you will be humble if, if you have an authentic relationship with God, because you'll see it's grandeur as opposed to your loneliness. But I think it, if you're saying always that I'm I'm worthless, but that's that's probably not well balanced, even if some of the things are doing, because the reality is we're creating the image of God, and so there has to be that, that counterbalance that. You know, I think they're speaking about you know, the depths of their sorrow, where they may have, may have you know, hurt their relationship with their Lord. Um, but you know, you know, the truth is, is that they probably have extraordinary virtues also, because they couldn't—they wouldn't name necessarily name themselves as saints, but they couldn't be saints without those virtues. So I think it, it has to be a balance there, to a certain extent, of course. But I, I think there are examples, right? Too, is the more you start, the more you start thinking, you can't be magnanimous without being humble. And if you spend too much time thinking about yourself. It's problematic. That turn from from you know being innocent, uh, I'm proud of my school to aren't I cool because I went to the school. It's a very easy turn to make. So I think so humility. Saints have a good example of humility in the foreground to prevent, prevent that turn to pride. If that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Uh, to what extent is like this concept specifically this one up here? Like, yeah. It's in your best interest to forget your self interest. Overlaps yeah. with kind of like the idea of like. Disinterested righteousness from like the wisdom literature of Job and Ecclesiastes. Yeah, uh, I think I think there's a lot of overlap to that actually, and and you know that disinterested righteousness is kind of it's kind of like the, I think there's a parallel between that and the Augustinian humility that I was talking about previously. Is that you know and so for you know and again and here's here's Lewis's formulation in there too. That, you know the humble person isn't some some, you know, necessarily some lowly, unconfident person is somebody who's not really focused on themselves. So that disinterested righteousness is a, is a similar phenomenon. And, it, and it's a very high standard of, of morality, too, because we're all self-interested. And to a certain extent, that's natural, and, it's, and, and it can even, be, can even be praiseworthy. It often leads to unpraiseworthy um, actions. But having that, you know, that disinterested stance towards what's truly good um, it's really important to be able to do what's good when it's hard, because often the good things are the hardest things to do. Yeah. How might we be able to like separate the uh, magnanimous thoughts from like peace and like peace and thoughts? Yeah. And like the false humility, true humility in like our own lives. And yeah. Uh, hmm. So. What I just said about the saints is probably, you know, look at the saints as, as an example. Um, that's the thing is, is that uh, I think we have a tendency to compare ourselves to other people, and that's usually usually not 
a great criteria for us to for us to pursue because it you know and it's, it's the problem of like social media so like you know stuff on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram it's half of reality it's all the happy part <laughs> for the most part you know and the other half is you know well I'm not gonna we don't need well there's some people that actually flash the other half but most people don't and so so if we're constantly comparing ourselves to, to other people we might think we're worse than them we might think that Better than that, and so I think I think that, and it's not that it's not like we'll ever stop doing that to a certain extent. Um, but I think what you, you want to when you when you're thinking about about yourself, and this is interesting because this is this is the union of humility and magnanimity. Is they're both self-regarding habits, um, and so so that's that's kind of the crossover. And I think they are different habits because magnanimity is. Um, is looking at your strengths, which is usually a happy thing. <laughs> Humility is looking at your weaknesses and your flaws, and usually not as happy. So there's diff different emotions associated with, the, with, with each action. Um, so, but I think looking at those things in the context of your relationship with God is in, in prayer life, that's where you're going to get um, uh, the most clarity and truth. Um, because one is you, you know, you get your dose of humility, as Father Chiswick talks about. It's like you know, you know, you know, you're not God, um, but also you know that you know you are. Although you have flaws and sin, you're also redeemed and intrinsically valuable. Not only because we've been told we're created in the image and likeness of God, but because we have a Savior that literally gave His life for us. That's how valuable we are. So I think I think I think that the best way to to you know, look at your strengths and look at your weaknesses in the context of is in the context of your relationship with God. So, and scripture, scripture is great on, on all this stuff too. So, as you as you read through scripture and, and, and you meditate on it, it's a great way then to to come to your to a good self understanding of your pluses and minuses. And probably the worst way, no offense to all our social media people, <laughs> is on social media, right? So, I don't know. I hope that I hope that's helpful. Good question. That was a hard one. <laughs> so. Just yeah, to add to that, I think another thing is if you have a sense of peace about it as well. Like when you're thinking so lowliness and get caught up in that, there is no peace, right? Right. But right, if you right, understand right. your lowliness in the context of God and His mercy, then you have this overwhelming peace. Right. And so I think right. that's all also very much into how uh, of your relationship with God. So yes. That's how. I kind of use it as a metric. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's a great point. Bringing mercy into that into that that reflection, I think, is very very helpful. Yeah, kind of like just kind of adding on to that too. There, there's an aspect of understanding the role of suffering and its redemptive value that kind of helps in. I don't know how to say that P word. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're like better words that, yeah. that negative. It's not a four-letter word. Either, it's, um, it's often enough uh, thinking oneself as lowly is a product of circumstance, yeah. a product of context, and uh, uniting that back to the mission and bringing the depth and value of it, kind of like kind of itself redeems whatever circumstances happen. Other comments, questions. I do want to make a shout out. I noticed my, one of my brother knights is here in the uh, in the third row. So thanks, thanks so much for uh, for coming. So that's my day job. So I'm working with the Knights of Columbus uh, doing. Lead. I was doing leadership and ethics education in the Naval Academy. Retired and was able to basically do the same stuff for the Knights of Columbus, which are big big organizations. So, uh, so thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. And uh, well, 
without any ado, I'm, I'll be hanging around. So if you if you want to, you know, talk to me individually, I'm happy to do that. But I guess we can call it quits. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.